First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Let's start to read here. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This passage is not primarily about slavery. However, I want to spend a few minutes addressing what the Bible says about slavery since the reference in the opening sentence of this passage to slaves, the reference to slaves submitting to their masters, even harsh masters, will naturally bring up a number of questions in your mind. We covered some of these points about slavery when we were studying Romans and Ephesians, particularly Ephesians chapter 6 verses 7 through 9 but they bear repeating in this context. And here's the most important statement we can make about slavery, physical human slavery, based on the full scope of the word of God and God's plan for humanity. Although the Bible refers to slavery, even describing it in terms of how it existed at the time the scriptures were written, the Bible does not sanction, which is it does not approve, and neither does it condone, it doesn't accept or allow for physical slavery. The Bible does not promote slavery. The Bible denounces slavery as sin. The New Testament goes so far in First Timothy as to put slave traders in the same category as murderers, adulterers, perverts and liars. So if you've never paid attention to that scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8 to 11 says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. 
So it's clear that the abuse of fellow human beings, those created in the image of God, the abuse of humans by those in power was not the perfect will of God for humanity, but the consequence of sin and rebellion against God. So how should we understand the biblical references to slaves obeying their masters? Slavery within the Old Testament context was sometimes due to economic burdens rather than racial or ethnic subjugation. People would sometimes voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to pay back a debt. A convicted thief could make restitution by serving as a slave. That comes in Exodus chapter 22 verse 3. And sometimes slavery was a result of military conquest where the vanquished foes were to serve the victors. Sometimes people were sold into slavery as Joseph was by his brothers for financial gain. And at all times though, masters were supposed to be good to their slaves. That's what the Bible said. To give them up the opportunity to secure their freedom. Jeremiah 34, 14 states that every seventh year the children of Israel were to free any fellow Hebrews who sold themselves into slavery. And every slave was to be set free in the year of Jubilee. Those who were freed could choose on their own to serve their masters as bond servants. But it was to be their choice. Scriptures in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Malachi, and others all make it clear that slaves were to be treated fairly, received their just wages, were not to work during the Sabbath, and not to be treated harshly or severely harmed. In fact, it says if you do something, if you knock out a tooth or you do something to hurt a slave, you had to not only compensate, you had to set them free. So it was a very definite standard that was even applied because of the hardness of human hearts. You know, when Jesus was asked about divorce, he said it was because of the hardness of your hearts that divorce was even permitted. Because it was God who joined man and woman together. It was not his intent for them to be divorced. But because of the hardness of your hearts, it was permitted. In a similar way, slavery as a human institution, as this human bondage was the hardness of human hearts that had led to it. And, but God says, even if you are doing something like this, you cannot be abusive to the people. That was his command to them. The New Testament goes even further. Even as Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, encouraged slaves to take available opportunities to be free, to be made free, he wrote this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When Paul writes to Philemon, Regarding Onesimus, a runaway slave who came to Christ through Paul's ministry, Paul states, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. 
So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. This is the way that the Bible is describing it. That not to think of inequality or being unjust, but rather to say these are folks that are equal and would be brothers and sisters with me. And the work of the New Testament in particular, but clearly the work of the Lord throughout human history, was to redeem, transform, and to bring about the change of what the human condition had been because of sin, but to bring redemption through Jesus so that all of these kinds of institutions would be abolished. And that's why even the greatest works against slavery were prompted by those that applied biblical principles and were leaders in the church who said we have to stand up for what is right according to the Lord and according to the word. Paul would not have identified himself as a slave of Christ and encouraged believers to consider themselves as slaves of Christ if the word of God was sanctioning human slavery. He uses the imagery, he uses the metaphor and so on because in learning what the Old and New Testaments say about slavery and freedom, we're able to relate to the concepts of the, what is there and we understand John chapter 8 verse 36 which says, if the sun sets you free, you will be truly freed. You, free, you'll be free indeed. We understand that it is speaking of freedom from slavery to sin and death because we're seeing what was going on in the human, in the world around us. And now we're able to say, oh, I understand what God means when he says, I have set you free from the bondage of Satan, of the bondage of self, from the bondage of sin. I've, I've freed you. And then we're able to understand that it is freedom for slavery or total submission to righteousness. When it says to be a slave of Christ, we're saying we are submitting entirely, no will of our own, but entirely given over to the Lord so that we will willfully submit to God and his lordship over us. And then the freedom of freedom in Christ, freedom to die to self and to be made alive in Christ when that we find true freedom when we live and move and have our being in Christ. So there's a whole lot more that can be said about the topic of slavery. However, with at least those stated insights in mind, let's come back to our passage. Uh, so I said earlier that the passage is not really about slavery. It's using that common reality of the time of unjust and immoral masters who would be harsh to their slaves to make this point. Submit to human authorities even if you suffer for doing good Bear the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. Bear the pain of unjust suffering not because you're conscious of your harsh masters, but because you are conscious of God, because you live in the fear of God, because you are willing to submit to injustice because you know the true just and living God. And that's, you know, like I explained even last week, that's a very difficult concept for us to grasp or even adhere to. To submit when we say, oh, this person is a terrible person, but I'm going to submit to them. The idea is very contrary to our desires, to our rights, to our freedoms. Peter expounds, though, on how we can be conscious of God. He doesn't leave us by just saying, just, you know, do these things because you're conscious of God. He says, by following 
the example of Jesus. Jesus was always conscious of God. Jesus and the Father were always in that communion where he said, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me or shows me. I don't say anything until I hear or unless I hear the Father saying it. He said, I do everything according to the will of the Father. He was always conscious of God. And so Peter here says, do these things, be willing to submit, be willing to suffer the pain of unjust treatment, harsh treatment, because you're conscious of God, because you will follow the example of Christ who suffered. So what did Jesus do? And how are we to follow in his footsteps? Well, we have three specific examples that Jesus did, or examples to follow of what Jesus did from verse 23. One, Jesus didn't retaliate when insulted or attacked. Two, he didn't threaten when he suffered. And three, he trusted in God's justice. So the point for us, as a point of application, as a point to understand, as an example to follow, very simple. Don't retaliate. Or the ESV puts it, don't revile. And that means don't criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. Don't come back. And retaliation happens only when you counterattack in return for a similar attack. You know, somebody does something to you, you retaliate. Retaliate is not initiation. If you were initiating an at attack, it wouldn't be called a retaliation. But when you have an attack that comes against you and you counterattack, you say something, you do something, you go against that person, you have to put them in their place. That's when retaliation takes place. And the simple statement is, don't retaliate. It may be that you didn't initiate the insults, the attacks, the physical altercation, but, and you would be justified in your counterattack. You would be justified. Nobody would say, oh, you were not doing the right thing. They would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That person deserved what you just said back to them. But that's the call, that you would not retaliate. There were times when Jesus spoke a harsh word of rebuke to some of the leaders and some of the people. I mean, he's very, very direct with people, right? He knows exactly what's in the hearts of all men, and he speaks to them in very, sometimes very harsh ways. But you realize, you go through, you look through the Gospels, there, you'll notice that he never retaliates when someone attacks him verbally or physically. You know, it's not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know. You say this to me, I'll insult you back. You know, he doesn't do that. He just simply doesn't retaliate. Even when he was led to the crucifixion and he's going through all of the things that they're going through and Pilate says to him, and I referred to this even before in the previous weeks, you know, when Pilate says, don't you know I have the power? He says, no, you don't have any power that has not been given to you. Submit to human authorities because God has given that power. But then... You know, he says, God, Jesus says, I could now ask of my father. And he would send a legion of angels to rescue me or to deal with this or to go through stuff. What is the point he's making? If I chose to retaliate, I could. He could just have done anything to retaliate against the attacks that were coming against him. But he doesn't. He merely stays silent. He never got into 
an escalating argument or conflict. You don't see it. Even at times when people are saying things that it's very clear are not true, that he would disagree with. Or when he's even speaking with the, at age 12 with the learned scholars and the priests and so on. It never describes it as being this escalating conflict. Retaliation leads to escalation. You say one thing or some, someone says something, you say something back. They come back with another attack, you counterattack, and it escalates. It starts to heat up. As I describe this, you're already picturing the times that has happened. Right? Whether it's in your own home or whether you're watching something or it's somewhere else, you know exactly what I'm describing. You know what it is for us to do it. I know what it is. You know, you want to retaliate, especially when someone says something that you feel is unfair, that is unjust, that is, you know, slandering you. You want to retaliate. You want to say, oh, you know, I have to say something. But the first and direct statement here, based on the example of Jesus, is don't retaliate. Secondly, don't threaten. When Jesus suffered, he made no threats. It wasn't like he was, you know, keeping silent, you know, not coming back at them. But he didn't make a threat. He didn't say, just wait till I res I'm resurrected. I know each of your faces. I know where you live. Just wait. You know? You know, I'm going to go to the Father and I'm going to say to him, it was this one and this one and this one and send fire from heaven. He didn't make any threats. He could have. And he could have said all sorts of things to them. And how many times? How many times? You know, I mean, think about it, right? Jesus could have said, if you do this to me, if you continue to do this to me, I'll do, and then you can insert whatever you feel will be the most threatening thing to that person. Maybe it's financial ruin. I'll make sure that you never do this or prosper. I'll make sure your business fails. You threaten somebody. Maybe it's physical pain. I'll beat you up. You threaten them. Maybe in our church, not so much about beating up, but, but you know, somewhere, somebody is threatening somebody with, with physical pain. Maybe it's character attacks. Oh, you know, you're a terrible person, and I'll make sure everybody knows what a terrible person you are. Maybe it's damaged reputation. You threaten them. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin your reputation. You threaten them. Maybe it's... Hey, maybe it's just a threat to withhold good. I'm not going to be good to you. I'm not going to pray for you. I'm not going to be kind to you. Because you have been bad to me. Maybe it is to utter curses. Ah, oh, may you never prosper. And you curse the person. In all these ways, we're threatening harm to the other person. Because we say, oh... You're doing something wrong. And I'm going to bring, I'm going to say something against you. Jesus could have said anything. And Jesus didn't even say, I'll have my father do this to you. You know, little kids will say, I'm going to get my dad. He's going to beat you up. Right? Jesus could have done anything to threaten. 
He could have made them feel the fear of the Lord, right? His disciples wanted to do it. They said, shall we call down fire from heaven? They rejected us. They didn't welcome us. Let's just call down fire from heaven and destroy this city. Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't threaten. And then it says that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know what that means? When you entrust yourself, when you commit yourself, you're assigning responsibility for what is precious to you, maybe your own life, maybe something else. You're entrusting it to someone else. And you're saying, you take this. You care for this. You be responsible for this. And to trust that that one, that person to whom you are entrusting your life and your life situations, to entrust them and to believe that they will judge justly requires patience. You have to have faith that they will do the right thing when you entrust them with this. And you have to have patience because they are not going to judge and to act according to your timing. You say, okay, I'll entrust this to you. Bring punishment right now. Bring a correction right now. Do this right now. God, I called out to you. How come you didn't make this happen? Not only does what God does in the world today seem too little too late, you know, it just doesn't satisfy us in terms of the measure of the justice that we want to see happen. And maybe the judgment of God may happen only at the end of all the age when it will be the true justice of God. So if you're entrusting it to God and you're saying, God, you take care of this, you better have faith and you better have patience. It's not going to happen according to your timing. That person that has hurt you may go through all the rest of their days on this earth without ever seemingly being judged for what they did. But would you, as Jesus did, follow his example to say, I entrust this to God. And you walk with faith and patience. Which brings us to the point of application that says this. We have to respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by returning to the shepherd of our souls. That's what we sang about even earlier. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Peter is encouraging us. He says, when all these things happen, when you are suffering unjustly, when you're going through suffering, and you will suffer, when you're going through all those situations, you must return to the shepherd of your souls. Now remember in verse 11, we were charged to abstain from sinful desires, to deny our sinful passions and desires that wage war against our souls for all the days of our lives. We don't get away from our inner man. We can't separate ourselves from the soul. We can't flee from our soul. We can't you know, avoid our soul. We can't do anything else to our souls except crucifying ourselves and allowing Christ to live in us. But the Bible says that our desires wage war against our souls. 
And that lifelong battle, that lifelong war against our own souls, the enemy within, is so crippling that we cannot wage it on our own. We must have outside assistance. How wonderful then that the Bible says that we have a good shepherd who is the overseer, the caretaker, the comforter, not of our bodies per se, but of our souls. All of our mind, our intellect, our will, our emotion, our you know, memories, all of the things that make up our person. The Lord is the comforter, the overseer, the bishop, the Lord of our souls. So are you having to wage war in your soul? Go to the shepherd of your soul. He's the only one who understands what your soul is going through and can therefore give you what you need. We must return to the shepherd of our souls. We return to our good shepherd who is also our Lord. We return to our good shepherd who provides everything we need for life and godliness. We lack nothing. We're not in want when we are with our good shepherd. And what does our good shepherd do? How does he care for our souls, our worldly, wounded, weary souls? He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He refreshes and calms our soul. Thousands of years before, there was aromatherapy and uh, aqua therapy and, you know, mindfulness and everything else, meditation, all the things that the world will come up with. The Bible was saying to you, the Lord leads you beside still quiet waters, right? The Lord is the one that he refreshes and calms our souls. The Lord is the one that brings you into green pastures. Smell that green grass. When all of that, the Bible was talking about this years and years and years ago because the Lord knows what is necessary for our souls. Our good shepherd guides us along the right paths for his namesake. He provides wisdom to know what to do, discernment to know what is right and wrong, and discretion to know when and how to speak out. He's the one who guides and directs. Even though we walk through the valley, the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of the death, even when the world, our flesh, and the devil bring fear and intimidation and threats, we fear no evil. Why? Because our good shepherd is with us. He uses the right tools, his rod, his staff, to keep us in the right path, to retrieve us to himself, to bring us to himself, to keep us calm and comfort us so that we would remember that he is always with us. He never lets us go. All our days, he is good. He is faithful. He has been there. He protects. He cares. He guides. In fact, our good shepherd provides everything so richly for us, even in the presence of those who wish us harm. Our good shepherd anoints our head with oil. He pours out such blessing above and beyond what we can even ask or imagine that our cups, our vessels, our lives overflow with his goodness and love. And our good shepherd has promised us that his goodness and love will be given in abundance all the days of our lives here on earth and that we will dwell with him in the house of the Lord forever. You see, Jesus, the Bible here, as we've read this passage, he says, it says Jesus was without 
sin. And there was no deceit found in his mouth. We are prone to sin and to give in to our passions and desires. And our mouths that speak from the abundance of our hearts, we, we know that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So what hope do we have? How do we live? How can we follow Jesus' example? We can follow his example because we have a savior, a lord, a good shepherd who bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. This is the gospel message. This is the message that should resonate in our hearts every single time we come to the presence of the Lord. This is the message that we have to share with somebody else. We're not promising peace to somebody. We're not promising joy to somebody. We're not promising love to somebody for any other reason than to say to them, Jesus has done this. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus has shed his blood for you. Jesus has healed all your wounds. We have been freed from our sins and their consequences. We have been freed from the bondage of sin. We have been freed from the enslavement of sin. We have been redeemed, bought with the price of the precious blood of Jesus. We have been brought into right standing with Christ, into the righteousness of God. We have been healed from past hurts. We have been restored to new life. Which means, as Peter is concluding this passage, he says, don't, don't stray like the sheep. Don't just go off on your own. Don't think that you have found a better pasture. Don't just pursue something else. Return to the good shepherd. Don't stray. Return to the good shepherd. Come to the good shepherd, and he will be the one that gives you life. He will be the one that gives you strength. You know, the submission, like I said right at the beginning, submission, the call to submission is difficult for us. Submitting to human authorities, suffering injustice, going through the pain of unjust suffering. All of these things are not easy. I'm not at all suggesting to you just, you know, you should do it. How come you're not doing it? It's not easy. But the, but the reason that we can go through this, the reason that the Lord calls us to do it, is because we're not trying to do it in our strength. We are relying on the Lord Jesus. We're coming to the good shepherd and saying, Lord God, because of who you are, because of what you have done, because you have set the example, I don't need to retaliate. I don't need to threaten. I can walk. I can live with faith and patience. That's the call that the Lord has made in our lives. So how do we put this into practice? It's going to look different in every person's life. It's going to look different in every household. It's going to look different in every church. But you can and you should pay attention to say, Lord God, what is it that I have been retaliating in? What, is, what are the fears and the things that are coming at me that I then start to rise up against rather than allowing it to be led by you, allowing it to be submitted to you? What is it that I am threatening somebody with? What is it that I feel that I can control or I can give, take charge of and I can mete out some punishment in some way? What is it that I'm holding on to in that way? 
And Lord, where is it that I have not been exercising faith and remaining patient? In which areas in my life, Lord, do you need to work and move? In which areas of my life do I need to yield to you as the true and holy and only shepherd of my soul? That's the call. That's the challenge. That's what we need to prepare for. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that the Lord Jesus came into this world. But he didn't come into this world for any other purpose than to set these examples and then to die on the cross to pay for our sin. Because of that, we have victory. We have life. We have the opportunity to apply this word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, you give us the means by which we can live on this earth. You give us the means by which we can respond to your word. Lord, you give us the means by which we can appropriate the Holy Spirit so that, Lord, we don't need to be led by our sinful nature. We need to be led by your example. Come, Lord Jesus, do your work in us. Prepare our hearts. Lord, cleanse us from the inside out. Fill us from the outside in. Lord, so that all that we will do is to live and to move and to have our being in Christ Jesus. And when we do that, Lord, I thank you that you give us the grace, you give us the strength, and you give us the wisdom to bear the pain of unjust suffering. Lord God, I thank you that you are with us even in the midst of those situations. Lord, I thank you that you don't tell us you will not suffer, and then we are surprised by it. You tell us that we will suffer, but that you are with us. You strengthen us. You direct our steps. And you cause us, Lord, to be purified, refined, and matured so that as we come through these situations, we are even more like Christ Jesus. We are more and more as the example that we are following. So we thank you for that privilege. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. We pray that you do your work in us, above and beyond what we may even ask or imagine. Lord, to make us like yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.